0: This is an AMI podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Accessing Art with Amy. I'm your host, Amy Amanti. My pronouns are she, her. Living in Chilliwack, B.C., today we have a chat with Q, who intersects with this world in all sorts of ways, as you will soon learn. I actually met Q several years ago. We were both offering our lived experiences, offering to be the teaching moment for a group of volunteers at a local arts festival here in Vancouver. Q made an impact on me that day. And it's interesting that I've been thinking about Q off and on throughout the years, only to have the opportunity to have it manifest in my life again. And it's been a real gift, a gift that I want to share
1: with you all. So please give a warm welcome to Q. My name is Q. My pronouns are they or it pronouns. I am specifically on the land of the Trocoyle and the tribes of the Stalo Nation, and I am a multiply disabled, crip, mad artist, and sometimes performer.
0: Q, I'm really, really happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for making time for us. I just want to start off right at the top, if if that's comfortable with you, um, because you have identified that you use... um, it and they pronouns and for folks who may not be familiar with it pronouns maybe perhaps you can share with us
1: what that means for you. For sure so I use it pronouns for a lot of reasons and one of them is actually because I find myself so often in medical spaces where, you know, we all experience dehumanization, uh, mm-hmm. to varying degrees in, in medical world. Um, and I found that my relationship to my gender is very tied to that and tied to just The way that I move through the world as a a queer disabled person, um, I feel that they pronouns, while also comfortable for me, don't fully capture the kind of dehumanization that mm-hmm. um you know I don't necessarily embrace but I recognize is is very core to uh, <laughs> to how I understand my gender and um my gender for the record is uh dyke fag uh is is the main descriptor I would use and again like you see me embracing uh things that that are usually considered slurs there and yeah it's it's Simultaneously, uh, something that's most comfortable for me internally, and also a way to like make people who don't necessarily experience um, that level of dehumanization and de-gendering, kind of make people reflect on that and mm-hmm. and get up in their own discomfort and figure it out themselves. Mm.
0: It feels a bit, I mean, like you're changing the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I i kind of love that. And I'm sure that we're going to talk about, I know we're going to talk about it, how, <laughs> how, how this intersects with your lived experience of disability and your artistic practice. So maybe you can, you know, uh, like we're, we're, it's a recipe here that we're working on, right? So how do all <laughs> of these things intersect
1: together? Totally. Um, so... For my artistic practice and the way that it relates to disability and gender, um, I my favorite kinds of art, both to, to experience and to create, are deeply political. Um, I think that, uh, for me, that's the most powerful kind of art, um, is the kind that engages social narratives and examines it and reinterprets it. So in my artistic practice, I dabble in everything mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever I can get my hands on I know you are you are the same but my main ones tend to be writing because it you can do it anywhere and um, and it's kind of the lowest cost barrier <laughs> honestly is how how that kind of became my main thing mm-hmm. um, and then I'm also a fiber artist and I put together little mini installations that have never really found a home except wherever I and up displaying them for myself so the top of my desk or in a shed (laughs) for example and those kind of installations like pull together found objects and things that I create with yarn and yeah just kind of pull all of these areas that I like to work in together
0: so you have you have these sort of installations within your realm of your personal space right Mm -hmm. and um what have you got going right now
1: yeah so I kind of uh I have two projects one smaller and more just for me and one larger that I call my forever project uh the smaller one is also a forever project but the larger one is the forever project (laughs) (laughs) you know semantics but okay, so we'll start with the the larger one, let's say. Um, it is a collection of safely gathered uh, street signs. So things like sidewalk closed or um, detour, things like that. Um, and I have been slowly collecting them over the years, you know, things that are decommissioned or just too damaged to use anymore. And I crochet... Uh, strips of lace is the main thing that goes into this project is strips of lace. And I put them around the edges of these signs to kind of soften them and, and play wow. with the, the big differences in texture. And then I have, you know, <laughs> over having lived a, a crip life, I I have various pieces of mobility aids and medical equipment. And the idea for this Forever Project is to eventually have a place to install it where it's this kind of maze where you have to follow the signs and interact with them. And there are will be mirrors at the end of, of each of these kind of pathways you can take that are also surrounded by these lace strips, and it's it's a reflection, haha, uh, on <laughs> on um, navigating our world and who is allowed to be soft, who is given the space and permission to grieve and engage with difficult emotions and and who is you know kind of barred from that based on identities and circumstances and uh, Ah. social perceptions because you know like grief I I am also a death doula Um, I I guide people through the ends of their lives Mm -hmm. Um, and so I have a lot of thoughts on grief and a lot of ruminations on who is is given the the room and their access to their cultural traditions for grief and what it means to grieve both death and you know loss of abilities we right. we go through stages of grief for all kinds of things, and often that isn't recognized or allowed for
0: okay, so the forever project the term forever is an, is an unending term so mm-hmm. is, it, is there a plan to um, have an installation one day, or is this something that's just really private and personal to you? And you're, um, you know, just collecting and, and doing these things on your, you know, your artistic journey. What does that look like? You know,
1: as it unfolds into the future, I suppose. I do eventually want to have some kind of public show for it. I think that it would be really interesting. For example, at the Gallery Gachet, uh, they do really cool work in Vancouver um, with mad artists. And I think that that would be really interesting. So I do eventually plan to pitch it to them. And, but also, like, even after any potential showing I feel like this is something that I will continue to work on and continue to change and build because I can never just leave things alone even poetry that I write like Uh I'll perform it and then I'll continue editing it for like months or years because I think that part of why I like performing rather than page poetry for example is that I can make these different iterations a lot easier I can make these kinds of expansions and and uh reflect my my own growth and change and so that's kind of my idea for this forever project as well is even if it does have that public aspect to it it will continue to be a private project as well
0: and I know that you have something that is uh, right in your space right now that relates (laughs) to your life and being a death doula and can you tell us what that is
1: yeah so right beside me is um, my grief altar plenty of people keep altars for varying reasons, whether it's religious or spiritual or or just personal um, aspects of what they need. And this altar is a way for me to have a place where I can visit that grief at any time that I, I feel I need it. And it can just offer a little bit of space for me to reflect on difficult emotions or really strong emotions and spend some time with the the people and things that I have lost. So this altar, it has a, a lot of small objects on it. It is just on a little side table and it has a black scarf covering the side table with little gold cacti all over the scarf, which I really love. Um, one of my partners is a plant nerd and really especially loves succulents. So it's that personal aspect that is important to me. And then some other of the objects that are on the altar, you know, all of them are important, but the really like essential ones that are on it, no matter how I arrange it, are a number of small and tiny stones, um, anything ranging from like something you could hold in your palm to like something you hold between two fingers and then a small dish of water and a candle holder. The stones, I have collected uh, a stone for every person that I have personally known who's died since I was 21 and uh, a few before that as well. And I'm Jewish, <laughs> um, but I, I converted to Judaism quite recently like last year Um, but I've been doing this practice for a long time and I bring that up because in Judaism one of the practices is rather than bringing flowers to people's graves you bring a stone and it's meant to like hold their their body and their spirit uh, um, and, and like keep it present in a way. Uh, There's a whole lot of spiritual significance behind it. And so I was reflecting on this yesterday, actually. And I was like, I started this practice before I knew I would convert. And stones have always been an important part of my grief practice. Uh, So I I just find it very interesting that there's these ties between uh, my conversion and my ongoing grief practice that I I never really intended. Do you know
0: what's interesting about that? I I too have this like affinity for stones and I don't, I've never really thought about its Mm. meaning, but I I have, I have a little jar of like little Mm. pebble sized stones that I've collected from all sorts of places. Um, Yeah. And I, I, I don't, I never sat down and sort of examined what that is. Cause I think if I were to look at this jar, I'm not sure I'd be able to say, Oh, I got this one here and that one there. Mm -hmm. Um, But somehow there's this beauty in this collection of like almost random Misfitty type shapes, totally. Um, and I, I, I love the word misfit. I use it in the most loving way. But like I, <laughs> there's something about that that I, that feels grounding to me. Um, and even this idea of having kind of, a, I don't have an altar per se, but I have, I guess, I guess the closest thing to call it would be a charm bracelet. And so mm. each one of the charms on the bracelet is representative of a person that was close to me that I that I've lost. Um, mm-hmm. And so wearing that brings them close to my heart and mm-hmm. um, allows me, I think sometimes allows me to be expressive in a different way, because I kind of feel the sense of confidence that these mm. people are with me when I wear this. And so I carry with them their stories and, you know, their their power, so to speak. I don't know. This is my, <laughs> my like, <laughs> my, my no. brain. You know, like we, we go to all sorts of places when we grieve about what that mm-hmm. means and how we carry, you know, the traditions and the routines of that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, we live in a a society that I and many people involved in death work describe as death phobic. We, We are afraid to talk about death. And it's quite a recent phenomenon, actually. Um, but it's like, it's part of why and also, you know, this relationship goes both ways, but it's part of why death is so uh, separated from all of our society. You know, people go to yeah. the hospital to die. And, you know, it's, it's not the way that processing happens. Processing happens in the home. It happens in our, in ourselves, in our relationships. And um, anything we can do to like break that death phobia that we live surrounded by Um, I think it's really, really important, whether it's talking about death or, you know, having that charm bracelet, having an altar, just being really like frank about about our experiences with death grief. It's it's Mm -hmm. really important to our our health, honestly.
0: So you carry all of this with you. I mean, we do.
1: We're humans, right? We carry all Mm -hmm. of this stuff with us
0: into everything that we do artistically. Um, Mm -hmm. at least that's my belief, right? It's it's hard to just leave a part of you behind and say, Oh, I'm not going to express this part of me in this work that I'm doing. Um, and I really value that when I get to talk to folks like you who are embracing these like uncomfortable conversations, I guess uh, things that the world finds uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Um, and we may find them uncomfortable to a certain extent. Um, but it's largely the world that tells us it's uncomfortable to talk about these things, disability, gender, grief, all of those things. So you've, You've created this, almost this artistic practice out of your lived experience. Um, and I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, but you had a poem.
1: Uh, yes, uh, I have it. You I have, have it. it.
0: <laughs> and, and we'll throw out a content warning, because I remember when you told me about this poem, you're like, "It's I wanted to write the grossest thing I'd ever written. So yes. folks you know, we'll throw out a content warning. But can you share this poem with us, Q?
1: Yes, um, I can I can give the content warning off the top if you would awesome. like. Um, So specific content warnings for unsanitary uh, language and imagery, um, eugenic ableism, gore, and ableist and anti-sex worker slurs that are being reclaimed. So this poem is titled We Do Not Grant You Title Here, and it's specifically written after uh, an artist that I love is HTML Flowers, a.k.a. Grant Jonathan. It goes like this. We... Abhorrence of violated future lost reviles. Dripping profits of abled demise. Carriers of glib disease whoring our bodies to medicine while we gutter roll the streets on our backs, begging violence from an emptied moon that loves us through her fever. A buried ocean that has forgotten how to sing her emptied wife through birthing bloody fecal prayers. Your funerals after endless apocalyptic hemorrhaging. The beetles and maggots consuming what you called you, After funerals have gone out of style and we all rot in the remnants of streets gutted and fetid, fish caught and sliced and abandoned, while oil slicks slip from our sclera. Vicious snapping commodities devoid of capitalist gain commodifying our snarling survival until we take you into our writhing underbelly, into our oozing cunts, into our hovels built of bone and gristle. Intestine, colon, viscera festering under the sink piled into your throat. All you hoard putrefying. All you press distant, creeping close, pink insulation sticky with 1939 consensual homicides in your attic. Drywall peeling, parting from gray sludge hidden between your world and what you have graciously granted us while we overstay our unwelcome beneath your heavy feet. Plastic dolls filled with molding toothpaste. Corvid skulls on earth still gripped in tangling milkweed roots. Algae growing round the edges of your eyes, nostrils, aorta vertebral foramen. Welcome into this unsprung mattress, empty-handed con man, if your answer sates our shriveled crippled gut. What awful bring you to please our whoring hearts?
0: Oh, every time. I've only heard it twice, but every time. (laughs) Um, there's lots of stuff to talk about in there. So deeply personal, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, can you share with me, with us, why this poem was important for you to write? What was the impetus of this writing?
1: I want to draw attention to one of the lines, um, 1939 consensual homicides is a specific reference to the action T4 Nazi eugenics program that started in 1939 and went until 1945. And this poem was written in my partner's sister's house (laughs) we were visiting in Ontario and Canada has a, uh, a program that is expanding right now that is Medical Assistance in Dying, and it's mm-hmm. expanding. Uh, currently, uh, it can be accessed by disabled people that are not near the end of their life or don't have any foreseeable death. And in 2023, it will also expand to people who have uh, mental illness as their sole qualifying Um, condition yep Uh and um, highly controversial yeah Yeah. highly controversial there has been a lot of lobbying from various groups um, to get it pushed through uh, and um, some people have been fighting this since actual medical assistance in dying for people with like foreseeable deaths was put through and you know people disabled people who have studied history and neoliberalism pointed to the fact that this would not uh, solely be reserved for people who are dying that it would follow the exact track that is it is following um yeah. they, they were quite accurate in everything that they have said and so for the past oh three years i guess um i have been specifically and directly involved in efforts to to kind of stop this um bell And like it's continued expansions um, because we're seeing people in poverty dying. And so all of these things were part of, part of this, this poem was, you know, disabled people, uh, the Nazis called us useless eaters. Um, We, we don't contribute to capitalism often, whether we are barred from labor through inaccessibility or we just can't work no matter how accessible the workforce ever becomes. We are a drain on a capitalist society and as an anti-capitalist, I consider that a prideful fact, but that is definitely not how it is intended.
0: That's right. Um, uh-huh.
1: <laughs> so this, yeah, this poem was a reflection on you know, being a survival sex worker in the past, because that was the only form of capitalist labor that I could uh, I could engage in for accessibility mm-hmm. reasons, and um, the lines that I see between that experience and uh, just everything that is said about disabled people's laziness and um, how so many non-disabled people consider our disabilities our fault um even subconsciously they're like well you know if you'd been healthy if you had made better Mm -hmm. choices or this is you know you get what you deserve if you've been a bad person then you become disabled all these things and it's it's just many reflections on those social narratives that people tell themselves yeah
0: how does this all relate back to your artistic practice do you think
1: as I said, like, I think that the most powerful art uh, for me to both engage with and create is deeply political. I think that artists have a tremendous role in interpreting social dynamics and social moods and uh, and reflecting it back to society. And, you know, neoliberalism has made it so that a lot of the art that is uh that that gets big is is a commodity rather than um, any kind of political commentary or uh, deep kind of interrogation of, of the, the world around us. Um, often, social narrative art is considered folk art, uh, and okay. that is considered derogatory, is to be folk art. Yeah. And I, I love folk art. I think that it is so strong and so essential to social movements and to changing what is happening, because you can't change things if you can't name them. Um, so my, my own art practice is... You know, tied to both my personal experiences, and then looking at how they connect to social dynamics and how they can be used in in political movements. I think that that is the highest compliment is to be able to contribute to a political movement with my art.
0: Yeah, we we have to have enough folks that are shit disturbers, <laughs>
1: truly. <It's> really-
0: <laughs> Right. Yes. We have to, we have to change the narrative, you have to stir, stir, up, stir up some messy stuff. Um, yes. Because a lot of folks don't acknowledge that this messy stuff existed or still mm-hmm. exists. And so, those of totally. us who are experiencing it and, and know it have almost a duty to, to tell it. So, thank you for um, making this a part of your life and a part of our lives. And as we transition, I hear that mixed bag sound. Are you game? Are you game? You want to I'm play game. a little? All right. I'm ready. All right. Um, okay, so these are not, you know, they random questions, they go in a bag, I pull them out before every interview, just so that I'm not sort of creating out of thin air these questions. And sometimes they repeat from guest to guest, which is also kind of nice. So my hmm. first question for you, Q is, what's the last thing you binge watched? Hannibal. <laughs> and, oh, and they canceled that like halfway through. Yeah.
1: I and they really took it off Canadian Netflix.
0: Netflix. <laughs> oh, they did. Did they? You know, know. I was watching it like in prime time it was before, mm-hmm. before, before the days I had Netflix. And yeah, uh, and all of a sudden it stopped. <laughs> yep. And I, I don't know what happened to that. All right. I love that one. Uh, okay. If you could take a fantasy vacation, where would mm-hmm. you go? What would you do?
1: I think I would go to the Scottish Highlands with my partner who is reconnecting with their their ancestry. And I would go to all of the places that they know their family is specifically from, because they know all kinds of details now. And um, we would collect all kinds of plants and make all kinds of weird fibers to, to crochet and knit with. That's what I would wow. do. That sounds like fun. It's on my bucket list. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, yeah. Um, I, I feel a very
0: a very um, almost visceral connection to like
1: mm-hmm. um, Gallic
0: and Celtic kind of music. And oh, yes. oh my gosh, I, I, you know, maybe I can fit in your suitcase. It'd have
1: to be a really large suitcase. Um, You're okay. welcome to try. <laughs>
0: um, and the last question for you is, let's say um, uh, you could choose a profession other than your own, any profession in the world, um mm.
1: what would you try? I would be a mycologist. I would study fungi really closely, um, and I would learn everything I can about them, which I already try to do, but I would have so many more resources to do it. and i I think I would just really dig into them and um, make. I would, I would love to make dyes out of them uh, because fungi make gorgeous dyes. And I would just, I would just immerse myself in mycology and see where it takes me. Wonderful.
0: That's the end, my friend. Where can folks find you on social media?
1: Um, I am at Q, just the letter. So all of those words, the letter Q, and then just the letter on Twitter and on Instagram, same handle on both. So people are welcome to find me there. And my Instagram is private, but people, I don't screen people. So people are welcome to request to follow me if they're interested. And that's totally welcome. Wonderful. Thank you so much for
0: joining us on Accessing Art with Amy. Thanks for having me. Before we leave, I want to offer you this quote of the day from Aina Didenko: Art is a disruptive form that serves as a tool for changing existing political and social realities. Thanks for listening to Accessing Art with Amy. This podcast is produced by me, Amy Amanti. Technical production by Jacob Szymanski. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. If you want to reach out to the podcast with any questions or thoughts, we absolutely would welcome that. You can email us at feedback at ami.ca or reach us by telephone at 1-866-509-4545. Thanks again to my guest today, Hugh. Keep exploring. We'll see you next time. I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced and hosted on the stolen lands of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Peoples. There are more than 1.8 million people that identify as Indigenous across the
1: Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favourite podcast provider.
0: Canada.